So it's my privilege to introduce uh, a very dear friend of mine uh, this morning, uh, Shane Huey. Uh, Shane uh, and I were on staff at Veritas Columbus at the same time, and um, we disappeared in, into one another's offices quite often when we should have been working to have conversations about Christ, about the gospel, about preaching, about um, many various things. We played a lot of darts. Uh, I think I'm better at darts than him. Um, and uh, Shane is the, uh, the pastor of youth and young adults at the Vineyard Columbus. He's, a married, he's married to Elise, uh, and together they have uh, two children. And uh, it is my uh, privilege and pleasure to introduce him, him to you this morning. Um, so as he, in, as he takes us through Ruth 2, can I pray for you, brother? All right, Father, uh, would you bless Shane um, with the power and presence of your spirit uh, so that your word goes forth into our hearts, piercing our hearts and uh, transforming our hearts, convicting us where we need to be convicted, comforting us where we need to be comforted, and ultimately conforming us to the image of your wonderful, beautiful, excellent son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. What well, is a joy to be at Veritas Dayton. Um, as Garrison said, my name is Shane, and uh, it's, a, it's a real privilege to be here. I'm here because my brother asked me to come. And uh, for Garrison, I, I, I would have come to cut the grass if that's what he needed me to do, but I, I care deeply for, for G and for Amy and, and their kiddos. Uh, do got a lot of really, really fond memories with Garrison. Um, some of the funniest moments of my life were actually with him. Uh, if you care to hear some of those stories, just ask me after service. Got a lot of good ones. Um, but uh, uh, this is really meaningful for me, not only because of the affection I have for Garrison and Amy, but also because... Um, as Garrison said, he and I kind of came up in ministry together, and uh, I remember the conversations when, when Veritas Dayton was a uh, little more than just a God dream in Garrison and Amy's heart, and, and to actually be here and to step into what I really consider to be a, a miracle. Like, a, you know, church planting is hard, and, and church is, the local church is the cutting edge of the kingdom of God, and, and in the midst of uh, tremendous darkness to, to be in a place where I, I truly see and feel the light of Christ dawning in this uh, amazing city of Dayton, Ohio is, is a true joy, and so I'm grateful to be with you. Um, did y'all know that Garrison is a, is a phenomenal worship leader? Did you know? He's actually like my favorite worship leader. How many of you have had the joy of hearing Garrison lead worship? Okay, well, hold him to it. Tell him in 2020 he owes you a couple sets of worship leading. <laughs> Because uh, he's the songbird of our generation. He's got the voice of an angel, y'all. The Bee Creek Bala. Did you know that was his, G his first AIM name? The Bee Creek Bala. He had a mean jumper back in the day. Now all of his muscles get in the way. He can't really play basketball anymore, but it's fine. He had his day. Uh, we're going to continue our uh, series that Garrison kicked off last week in the book of Ruth. So if you have your Bible, uh, go with me to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2, and go ahead and keep your scriptures open today, uh, because uh, this isn't the sort of sermon that is arranged by points. 
I listened to Garrison's message last week, and he had a four-point sermon, and every point started with the same letter, and I was just like, man, I wish I could preach like Garrison could. I don't have any points. Um, we're just going to walk the text together, and as best we can, try to immerse ourselves in this story, and by the help of the Holy Spirit, we're going to walk out of here with a little bit more of affection for Jesus in our hearts. Amen. Amen. Because it is a, a lengthy text, what I'd like to do is just uh, kick off by reading together the first three verses, and, and then we'll pray, and we'll walk the, te- the rest of the text together. So I'm going to pick it up in Ruth chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she, being Ruth, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. This is the word of the Lord. Let's close our Bibles, open our hearts, and turn to God in prayer together. Come, Spirit, reveal Christ, stir in our hearts affection for you, Father. Pray that uh, you would help me to be faithful to your word and to get out of the way so that Christ may be seen and glorified. In these next few moments we have together, would you redeem our time and make your presence evident among us, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. I'm not as good a preacher as Garrison, nor am I as long-winded as he is. So we're going to try to make quick work of this and get y'all going on this very fine Sunday morning. Um, I'm going to put my Bible right here, if that's okay. Uh, I got a, did you guys get that photo of my family? Can, you, can I show you my family? I'm, I'm so vain, I'm going to stand here and show you a picture of myself. Is that okay? Uh, this is my crew. Aren't they a good-looking crew, y'all? Uh, this is my wife, Elise. She is fierce and creative. Uh, I got to hustle back to Columbus right after service because she's actually uh, leading worship for us tonight. And uh, these are our two boys. This is Shane Douglas Huey Jr. on the left. Uh, we call him J.R., and uh, the squirmy one trying to get away is Miles. He just broke his arm. I don't know if you guys could see his cast, but he'll bounce back. He's fine. Um, so that's my family. Uh, God is good, and I'm grateful uh, for them. But let's return our attention to the text. Like I said, today I'm going to uh, continue the series that, that G kicked off last week. Uh, it is the season of Advent, and so I, I hope the emotional experience and tone to the talk this morning is one of longing and deep expectation. Uh, before we get to chapter 2, if I could just quickly remind you where we've been in chapter 1. So the book of Ruth gets off to this incredibly cuddly start by telling us that pretty much everybody in Naomi's family has died, right? So Naomi is married to a man named Elimelech, and there is a famine that hits Israel, and so Elimelech does what you and I do. Oftentimes in, in moments of crisis, we, take, we try to take matters into our own hands, and so Elimelech gets the bright idea that he's going to flee from home, and he's going to journey about 40 or 50 miles away to a town called Moab, and, and uh, this is a different sermon for a different time, but it's helpful for you to understand that, that uh, 
Israel and Moab, they, they weren't the best of friends. And so there's some uh, relational and even racial tension that's here in the text. And, and we're told that uh, this was during a time when the judges ruled, which essentially meant that there was rampant sin and corruption and rebellion amongst God's people. And so uh, Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, they journey to Moab, and, and while they're there, they, they take their two sons with them. While they're there, these two sons, they marry Moabite women, and we're told that at some point during their stay, every man in the family dies. It's like the Oregon Trail, right? Like, like they're just like, you know, one's got rickets, one's got pneumonia. We don't, we don't actually know why they die, but one by one. Uh, there they go. And so Naomi is left with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Uh, they've got nothing left in Moab for them now, so Naomi decides that she's going to go home. She's going to return to her people and her God. And before we hurry past this, I do think there is a really beautiful and prophetic message in this, in this simple truth that for you and I, uh, we're so often a lot like Naomi in that we find ourselves wayward and having wandered from home, having wandered from our God, but our, our God is so rich in mercy and abounding in His grace that the invitation always stands that regardless of how far we wander, you and I can always come home. And that's good news this morning. So they decide to go home. They want to go to their people and to their God. One of Naomi's daughters, Ruth, uh, the namesake of this book, uh, Naomi says to Ruth and, and her other daughter-in-law, Orpah, you guys stay here. There's nothing for you in, in Israel. Why don't you all stay? This is the only land you've ever known. You stay here. But, but Ruth displays this stubborn love and allegiance to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she says in verse 16 of chapter 1, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And it could be argued that this is the moment of Ruth's conversion. She says, your God, the one true God, will be my God. And, and what we see in Ruth is she displays covenantal love, the, the kind of covenantal love that the Father has so richly lavished upon us. She displays this by committing to Naomi through thick and thin. So uh, chapter 1 is full of famine and funerals, but here in chapter 2 we start to see a bit more of how God is providentially guiding Ruth and Naomi. Y'all still with me this morning? Amen. Let's pick it up in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Uh, I heard that this was a church that loves their Bible, so we're going to read a, a fair bit of Scripture, if that's okay. Verse 1 says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened, love that phrase, she just so happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, before we go any further, I want, uh, I want you to try to insert yourself in this story, this story 
which uh, we find out here in a moment, is, is largely revolving around what is seemingly a crazy coincidence. The author does us a favor by introducing us to Boaz in verse 1, but at this point in the story, it's very important for you to understand that Ruth doesn't know whose field she's wandering into. She doesn't know anything about Boaz. But, but the story, the crux, the, the hinge of the story is a big coincidence. Now, I want you just for a moment, just for fun, to think about a crazy coincidence in your life. A crazy coincidence. I know there's uh, probably a lot of things that come to mind. When I was studying for this sermon, I actually uh, did what all good preachers do, and I went to BuzzFeed, and uh, I found a few that I, I want to share with you if that's okay. Uh, crazy coincidences in history. Samuel Langhorn Clements. Does anybody know who, who that is? Mark Twain. Mark Twain. Well done. You get a gold star. Um, known more popularly by the, his pen name Mark Twain, was born in 1835, the same year that Halley's Comet made its first appearance. The comet made a second appearance in 1910, the year that Twain died. And so he was born uh, when Halley's Comet showed up, and then the second time that it showed up was actually the year that he died. And according to the New York Times, Twain himself famously predicted that the two events would coincide. He's quoted as saying, The Almighty has said, no doubt, now here are these two unaccountable freaks, one being Halley's Comet, the other being Mark Twain himself. Here are these two freaks. They came in together, and they must go out together. Coincidence. Another one. In 2014, there were two tragic plane crashes involving Malaysian Airlines. The first was shot down over the Ukraine, and the second disappeared without a trace somewhere over the Indian Ocean in one of the greatest aviation mysteries of all time. But beyond the fact that both incidents involved the same airline in such a short time span, there's another striking co coincidence. A Dutch cyclist by the name of Martin de Jong was scheduled to take both flights but cheated death by bumping his ticket on both flights at the very last second because he found cheaper options that had become available. Crazy. One more. Uh, any uh, fans of the podcast This American Life? Wave at me. Any NPR folks? Yeah, my people. So I, I listen to This American Life weekly. Here's, here's uh, a coincidence that I found from This American Life. Uh, there's uh, two people, one named Esther, one named Paul. They had been seeing each other for a short time when Paul decided to ask Esther to be his girlfriend. That day, while paying for a sandwich, he noticed a dollar bill he was about to hand to the cashier. And on that dollar bill had, written, uh, had been written the name Esther. How strange, he thought, that this should happen right when he was thinking about asking Esther to be his girlfriend. He kept the bill and decided to frame it and give it to her as a gift. She was utterly speechless when she saw it, but told him to ask her about it later. Many years passed. They got engaged and then married, and the framed dollar resurfaced in their home. Apparently, Esther had written her name on the dollar and a few others after a really bad breakup and said to herself at the time that she would marry the man who brought that dollar back to her. She didn't tell him why she was so speechless because she thought bringing up marriage on the day that he was just thinking about her being his girlfriend might freak him out. So that's why she said, ask me later. But she believed in that moment that she was the one. Now, I think that's pretty faulty theology, the one. 
but I think it's a good story, okay? Now, Ruth 2, like I said, hinges on what could be considered a crazy coincidence, but what I hope to show you is that uh, God is in control of every detail of our lives, and in His sovereign care, He is working together all things for the good of those who have united to them, themselves to Christ by faith, and all things. If you look that phrase up in the Greek, you want to guess what it means? It means all things. It means absolutely everything. It means the good and the bad. It means that God is working everything that Ruth endures for her good, but not just hers. This is true for all believers, for you and for me as well. So in verse 1, the author lets us know that Naomi has a relative named Boaz, who the Bible describes as being a worthy man. Now, this phrase, worthy man, means a lot of things. It means that, that Boaz was a man of war. He was a man of valor. It also indicates that he was a wealthy man, that he was a man of, of great stature and influence in his community. And, uh, and, and what's interesting about Boaz is that he's a bit of an anomaly because, remember, it was said that in Israel, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. But here in Boaz, we see a man who was, uh, was trying to do what was right in God's eyes. Scripture says that he was a good man. But like I said, the author's just doing us a favor because Ruth doesn't know about Boaz. She says in verse 2, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose, shite, whose sight rather I shall find favor. Now this again demonstrates the depth of Ruth's love for Naomi because she is willing to go and do the hard work of gleaning so that Ruth and Naomi might have food to eat. But I love this because it, it shows us not only the depth of Ruth's love for Naomi, but it shows us the depth of God's love for the marginalized. Because this process of gleaning was actually instituted by God as a way to provide for the Ruths and Naomi's of the world. This was instituted by God as a provision in the law so that the poor, the widow, and the immigrant and orphan would have a way to eat and survive. The way it worked was if you were a farmer or you owned a field, you actually were constrained by the law from harvesting that field edge to edge. Okay? You, could, you, could, you could sow, you could reap, you could hire workers to work that field, but, but you had to leave a portion of the field on the margins for the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the marginalized in your town so that they could come in after you had harvested and reap for themselves a harvest. You could have about 95% of whatever field it was that you owned, but you were obligated by God to leave a portion of that field for the folks whom the rest of the world had likely counted out and cast it off. Leviticus 19, 9 and 10 says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleaning of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave those for the poor and for the foreigner, for I am the Lord your God. So Ruth goes uh, with Naomi's blessing and the first field she stumbles upon happens to be Boaz. Now, what I want you to see here in a moment is that God is providentially working for Ruth, but I want you to notice from the beginning that, that Ruth is getting to work herself. 
She voluntarily says, let me go and glean in the field. Here's what I love about Ruth. You see a bit of her character here. Ruth is willing to work hard. The Bible is not opposed to hard work. The Bible is opposed to overwork. Scripture is not opposed to hard work. It's opposed to earning. Ruth was a hard worker. And I admire Ruth because she's doing the sort of work that I myself would not be caught dead doing, okay? She's work. I, I don't know if you can tell. I know my rugged stature probably leads you to believe that I'm super outdoorsy, but I wear earrings, y'all, okay? I'm not gleaning anything, right? <laughs> but Ruth says, let me go and let me get to work. The first field she stumbles upon belongs to Boaz. Now, if you don't have a faith vocabulary, you might call this a coincidence. But allow me to submit to you what I believe to be a better word. And that word is this, providence. Say that with me. Say providence. God's providence. If you're taking notes, jot this down. God's providence is uh, something that Garrison is going to have to preach on. He can give you a whole series on this single word, but let me give you a simple definition. God's providence, simply put, is the reality that God is in control. God is in control. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans says God's providence is his hand in the glove of history. And we know that Scripture says that God works all things out according to the counsel of His will. There is no situation that you experience that He Himself does not uh, ordain or permit or allow. In other words, God's dominion extends to every detail of our lives. Every single detail. You know, I don't know if this is true of well-discipled church like Veritas Dayton, but for the rest of us Christians, what, what we have this tendency of doing is, is we uh, equate God's activity with the miraculous, with supernatural. Now, just so my theological cards are on the table, I still believe in the supernatural. I still believe that God is in the business of healing and delivering and doing things that are exceedingly abundant above what we can ask or think. I still believe that the kingdom of God is breaking in. I, I'm one who is constantly contending for the miraculous, but I want to submit to you today that God's activity isn't just evident in the miraculous, that in fact every detail of your life is the supernatural working of a good God. Now you say, okay preacher, that sounds good, but help me out here. Why does it matter? It's a great question. I'm really glad you asked. Let me give you two considerations okay, when it comes to God's providence. God's providence shows us that in the same way God is involved in the miraculous, so too He is involved in every detail of your life. John Calvin says, Ignorance of providence is the ultimate of miseries, and the highest blessedness, lie, blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. Why? Because it lets us know that God is at work in the ordinary, mundane, everyday details of your life. Every breath, every second, every thought, God is nearer to you than perhaps you even realize. And He infuses it all with purpose. It also, secondly, it also lets us know that God lets nothing go to waste and so even in the mess of your ordinary, everyday life, God is redeeming whatever it is that you're going through. And we have this promise, it's sure in Scripture, that He is working about all things for our good. 
We may not see the fullness and fruition of that good on this side of eternity, but we know the day is coming where every tear will be wiped away. And as J.R.R. Tolkien puts it, any Lord of the Rings nerds in here? Love this. He says, all of the sad things become untrue. It's good news. Now, I spent some time reflecting on how God has acted providentially in my life. And the first thing that came to mind was when he used an NBA all-star and United States Olympian to call me out of my sin. A quick story. Uh, So I am a church brat. I grew up in a very loud Pentecostal church. And about uh, my sophomore year in high school, I hit a really rebellious fit started smoking everything I could get my hands on, and, and I, I grew up with a lot of brokenness in my life, and, and I had just determined that, that God had forgotten about me, and so I was going to forget about Him, and, and for a little while, I ran as far from God as I could possibly get. I became somebody who I was not. Uh, it was just a, a dark time in my life. I'm, I'm working at a bookstore, and in walks Michael Red. Do you guys know that name, Michael Red? He played for the Ohio State Buckeyes. Like I said, he was a, an all-star in the NBA, and he actually won the gold medal in the 20, uh, 2008 Olympics with the Redeem team in Beijing. I'm a basketball nut. My two boys, uh, I'm, I'm naming and claiming a scholarship. I don't know if that's your theology. That's mine, okay? I, I call him the backcourt. I got my shooting guard, and I got my point guard, and, and we're going to Ohio State in Jesus' name. We are... <laughs> We are a basketball family. So I recognize Michael Red the moment he walks in. He's my hero, y'all. He's my hero. And he walked into the bookstore where I was working when I was at my worst and at my lowest. And it was through the kindness and love of my, my hero that God won me and wooed me and called me back to himself. I was thinking about how I ended up at Veritas, some of the, the, the fondest years of my life. I, I told you I grew up Pentecostal, and if you ask me, I still say I'm a raging Pentecostal categorically, but it takes some clarification thereafter, and I see why God brought me to Veritas Columbus. And, and, and likewise with G, we actually uh, have a lot of similarities in our, in our journey with Jesus and our, our theological development. But it was at Veritas Columbus and, it, and in a church similar to the one that we sit in here, Veritas Dayton, that the Lord really refined my theology and gave me this singularity in my affection. It, it became all about Jesus. The gospel became central and it became my treasure. But y'all, If we could just be really honest in church on a Sunday morning, I told you I grew up in a very loud, very uh, black stream of Pentecostalism. Veritas Columbus was a a white, reformed Southern Baptist church. It was the closest thing to hell on earth I had ever seen. (laughs) But my wife, Elise, was part of the core team when that church was planted, and she was pretty, and that was all I needed, (laughs) y'all. And I kept coming back and eventually spent almost five years on staff there. And I am grateful beyond words for the way that that God shaped me and molded me there. Many of you might have similar stories. But but again, with God, uh, we don't believe in coincidences. We believe in providential, sovereign care. That God is working and redeeming even when we don't see it, even when we don't have all the answers, we can trust in his character and in his kindness. So Ruth finds herself, i got to pick up the pace here, Ruth finds herself gleaning in this field that she still doesn't know that it belongs to Boaz, but Boaz finally shows up in verse 4, 
And Boaz says, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Hold on to that phrase. We'll get to it in a second. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Can we try that? I'm going I'm to greet you guys with this benediction. You respond back, the Lord bless you. The Lord be with you. Y'all can do better. The Lord be with you. Anybody's boss greets you like that in the morning? No? Can I just get really practical and pastoral with you? How many of you, by a show of hands, are a manager in your workplace? That means you have people working under your employ in some measure. Can I just ask you, do you have a concern for the spiritual well-being of your employees like Boaz demonstrates here? We see again... Uh, why Scripture considers Boaz to be a good man, because he was a good boss, and, and he seemed to care in a very real way for his employees. One of his employees, or actually before we get there, Boaz, uh, he, he's probably a guy who owns a lot of fields. He's really wealthy. It just so happened, again, providential care, it just so happened that he comes to this field on this day. He surveys his workers, making sure everybody's good, and he, and he spots this girl, Ruth, and he wonders, who is this girl? One of his workers speaks up and says, oh, that girl, Ruth? Yeah, man, have I got a story for you. She's actually been through hell and back. She's here from Moab. Everybody in her family's dead. It's like she's just trying to, to get some food for herself and for her mother-in-law, and Boaz evidently is deeply moved by Ruth's story. And uh, he comes to her and says, listen, my daughter. Okay, this is uh, an echo of Naomi's blessing to Ruth as the chapter begins. Go, my daughter. I just want you to consider with me for a second how, how tender and endearing Boaz speaks to Ruth. And we're going to get back to that here in a moment. He says, uh, my daughter. Uh, and then he Ask her to stay here. Don't go to another field. I've charged everyone here to protect you. And if you get thirsty, feel free to go ahead and grab a drink. And, and skipping ahead a bit, Ruth is evidently very grateful for this gesture of kindness from Boaz. But I love Ruth because, she, because she's been through, through some things, she, she asks some tough questions, some important questions. She asked in verse 10, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Uh, a, a foreigner was at great risk of exploitation. A female foreigner was at a greater risk still of being uh, exploited, not only for her work, but for her body. And so Ruth wants to know what's going on here. There's a way to read this where it sounds like Ruth is swooning, right? Like, oh, Boaz, what makes you notice little old me, right? But I, I, I don't think that's actually what's going on here because you got to remember who's doing the talking. The girl has just watched her husband die. She's just watched all these men in her family die. She's just lived through a famine. She's just had to journey back to Israel with her mother-in-law. This girl, who she's got some thick skin, in other words, at this point. And what I hear from her is, is she genuinely wants to know what Boaz's endgame is. What are you up to here? And Boaz responds in verse 11. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to, told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you. 
The Lord repay you for what you've done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz says, your reputation precedes you, Ruth. I've heard about your character. I've heard about what you've done for your mother-in-law. And in the face of unspeakable pain and loss, your God is repaying you for your faith and your faithfulness. Again, this is a signal of the kind of character Boaz is working with. Notice he doesn't do what you and I would be tempted to do in this situation. He doesn't take out his iPhone and, and, and take to Instagram with a selfie and a caption that says, look at what an awesome guy I am. I'm going to provide for this little immigrant girl. Aren't I wealthy and powerful? And, and, and look at me, check me out. No, he says, the Lord repay you. He says, the Lord repay you uh, a reward in full for your faithfulness. Boaz is teaching us a bit about stewardship here. He knows that all he has, he actually hasn't earned in and of himself, but in fact, it has been gifted to him by God. And out of gratitude, Boaz is compelled to live a life of extravagant generosity. He says, the Lord repay you for your faith and for your faithfulness. In other words... Boaz says, God sees you. And I just think that's a word for somebody today. That God sees you. Scripture promises us that He is closest to us when we're broken. Even if you're in here this morning and you feel like He's a million miles away, He has eyes for you. He sees you. And it's right here where it begins to dawn on Ruth that she hasn't just stumbled on any old field, right? Now let's read the rest. We're almost done, believe it or not. We're going to close in prayer and, and come to the table. If I could read it for you, starting in verse 13. Then Ruth says, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of yours. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So, so she sat beside the reapers and he passed her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied. She had her fill. And even had some left over. When she rose again to glean, Boaz instructed the young men, saying, Make this a little easier for her, fellas. This girl's been through a lot. He says, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Verse 17, So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went to the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Let's push pause and consider. This is a picture of an exceedingly abundant God. Right? Ruth was just trying to get by. But God gave her more than she came for. And this is the way that the world works. God always gives you more than what you came for. When I hear uh, the challenge of Scripture say that, that, that God is able to do exceedingly above all that we can ask or think, I take that as a challenge. And I do not want God to be bound by my imagination because He's, he's bigger and broader and greater. Now, now, I love you enough to say this. Uh, an exceedingly abundant God doesn't give you always what you want but we can count on the truth that He always gives you what you need and, and His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His will is better than our will. But Ruth was just trying to survive, but God gives her more than what she came for. 
She was in a famine. Now she finds herself at a feast with food to spare and an ephah of barley to take back home with her. An ephah was somewhere around uh, 40 to 50 pounds of barley. Uh, and Naomi, when she sees all this, she's like, girl, where did you glean from? Like, how did you get all this? Here's what I, I just got, this is how domesticated my life has become. I just bought a minivan and I got a Sam's Club membership. Anybody got one of these things, y'all? It is glorious, okay? But here's the trap. I buy stuff that I don't need now just because I got that membership, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm trucking, you know, uh, toilet paper for years. Like Y2K is about to happen. I got canned goods and, and goldfish, y'all. We got enough goldfish to last us a lifetime. And that's kind of what's happening here. Ruth walks in with, with 40 or 50 pounds of barley. And, and Naomi says in verse 19, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? And I'm going to close with this. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, I don't want to preach someone else's sermon for them, I think. Gee, do you have chapter 3? Uh, Garrison, do you have chapter 3? Are you preaching somebody? There, there's so much wrapped up in this idea of a redeemer, but if I can just give you a foretaste of what's to come in the following two chapters. Uh, the, the, the way that it would work is if, if uh, your husband died, it thereafter became the responsibility of his brothers to care for you. It was to ensure that there weren't, wasn't going to be uh, compounded generational uh, curses and, and financial strain for somebody. And, and that, that obligation to redeem a widow in your clan had a ripple effect. And so if your brothers couldn't do it, whoever was next in line would be the one to redeem you. And Naomi hears the name Boaz and it dawns on her, he's one of our redeemers. And in that, you see the light begin to dawn and shine in the midst of all of this darkness. He's one of our redeemers. Now, I leave you with this. Boaz should point us to a truer and better redeemer. Ruth 2 tells us that Boaz came from Bethlehem. Advent tells us that there is one greater still that has come from Bethlehem not only to redeem Naomi, but to redeem the entire world and to save us from our sins. Boaz was a good man, a godly man, which means that he displayed godlike characteristics in part and imperfectly for sure, but we get a glimpse at the kind of God that we worship. Boaz was a protector. He, he ensured that no harm would be done to Ruth. Did you know that your God is a God who protects you, who cares so deeply for you, and will guard you against the thing that you think is going to ultimately take you out? Scripture says that, that the Lord is a strong tower. We run into Him for refuge. Your God is a protector. Boaz was lavishly generous, and he leveraged his wealth for the good of this girl, Ruth. Did you know that your God is lavishly generous?
And he, Scripture says that he gives more grace in the book of James. As if the grace he's given isn't already sufficient, he lavishes more grace. Our God is a generous God. Boaz will become for Ruth and Naomi a redeemer. Our God is a redeeming God. And though our sins stain as scarlet, the blood of Christ has washed us white as snow. So let us turn our hearts to this Savior as we pray together and remember and respond to His finished work by taking communion. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we turn our hearts to You, our true Redeemer, the one coming from Bethlehem who redeemed who would redeem the whole world. You, Lord Jesus, are extravagant in your generosity, your grace and your kindness toward us. You, Lord Jesus, are our protector. Pray that in these last few moments we have together, would you draw forth from our hearts the worship that is due exclusively to your name. We rejoice in your providential care, God. Your dominion extends to the furthest reaches of our lives and nothing that we're going through is beyond the bounds of what you are in control of and can redeem. So work it out, God. We may not know all the answers, but today might we know you, your love, your goodness, and your faithfulness, our Lord and our Redeemer. In Christ's name, amen.